Good, good. Uh, we're doing a summer series in the book of Proverbs, uh, looking at our various topics uh, through the lens of wisdom. Uh, last week we looked at anger. Uh, this week we're looking at wise uh, sex, although it's broader than just sex. It's how do we think about physical beauty in general? Uh, so that's, that's where we're headed today. Uh, let me pray for us. Uh, uh, please join me in praying. We'll get into it. Our Father, please uh, give us ears uh, that are attentive to your word this day. Give us hearts that are open and ready to receive your word. We pray this day that uh, that you would open our eyes by the power of your spirit to see uh, the glory and wonder and beauty of our Lord Jesus, uh, that we might live faithfully in this world that you have made so beautiful. Uh, In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, It's interesting uh, that in 1 Kings chapter 3, uh, Solomon, who's the king of Israel, asked God for wisdom. Uh, You can read the story later on if you like in in 1 Kings chapter uh, chapter 3. Specifically, he asked for a heart that can discern right and wrong uh, as he governs God's people. Uh, So he wants to be able to discern right and wrong. And that's interesting uh, because as the king of Israel, uh, Solomon had God's law, right? Uh, God's law, which presumably uh, would have told him what was right and wrong. But of course, Solomon knew what we're starting to learn as we look through the book of Proverbs and as we live our lives, that so often knowing the right thing to do in a particular situation is not just about knowing a set of rules or laws or a particular set of morals. You've got to have wisdom. You have to have wisdom. Solomon knew that, so that's why he asked God uh, for wisdom. And as you read through Solomon's life and as you read through the book of Proverbs, uh, it's clear that one of the things that that can really cloud our wisdom is not being able to, uh, I guess, uh, manage uh, how to live in this world that's full of uh, the temptation of physical beauty. Solomon had his thousand concubines and a whole bunch of wives. He lost his way a fair bit. Uh, Presumably, he didn't really know how to handle physical beauty. And so it led to some foolish decisions. So that's what we're looking at today. How can we uh, manage the temptations of physical beauty and sex? And you can see there, if you've got the outline, uh, that uh, that if we're going to live wisely with regard to physical beauty and sex, uh, we have to understand three things. Uh, The three things are, number one, uh, um, we have to understand the destructive foolishness of undervaluing sex. And number two, we have to understand the destructive foolishness of overvaluing sex. And number three, uh, we have to understand how we can turn away from those two foolish paths, those two uh, really quite destructive paths, and live wisely when it comes to beauty and sex. Right? So that, that, that's where we're headed. Uh, so first, I, I want to look at, at this uh, destructive foolishness of undervaluing sex. Uh, you, you, it'll be useful for you to have that, that passage from Proverbs 5 in front of you. Uh, let's read those verses again. A wise teacher says, uh, from Proverbs 5, verse 15, Uh, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever uh, be intoxicated with her love. Some of you perhaps haven't read much of the Bible. Let me tell you, this is in the Bible. It's in the Bible. This this uh, really is, it's kind of a birds and bees conversation between uh, a father and son. 
a whole lot more explicit than the conversation I had with my dad, uh, but here it is. Uh, And in this conversation, if you read the whole chapter, you'll see that uh, the context is is how can this young man stay faithful to his wife? How how can he uh, uh, avoid being seduced by uh, the beautiful adulteress that kind of makes repeat appearances throughout the book of Proverbs? Uh, So the first thing we see in these verses uh, is that this father encourages his son to really enjoy having sex with his wife. That's clear. Right, if you look at the images here, uh, all these images, they're, they're quite kind of evocative. Uh, in verse 15, the sister and, sister and well there, they're well-known pictures uh, for a woman's vagina. Right? That, that, that's what this is talking about. Right? And so the, the point of the verse is, is just as you uh, have to enjoy water, uh, you have to kind of enter into a well or cistern regularly uh, to be physically satisfied, uh, so also husband and wife should enjoy having sex regularly. They should enter into it. To be sexually satisfied, right? How often is regularly? Uh, typically, it depends on if you talk to a husband or wife, uh, but uh, it's up to you guys to talk about it uh, between yourselves. But the point is that sex is good. Uh, God says that it's wise uh, to, to have sex, to enjoy sex regularly with your husband or wife. And part of the reason for that. It is so that you can heed the warning in verses 16 and 17. If you look at those verses there, springs in verse 16, uh, that's a picture of the man's bits, right? It's a fountain, it's a, it's a spring. Uh, so the warning here is for the men, uh, don't go sowing your wild oats all over the place. That, essentially, that's what the wisdom of Proverbs is telling us. Yes, enjoy sex regularly with your wife in the privacy of your home but not with anyone and everyone, right? Not in the streets, he says. Not in the public square. So after that warning, verses 18 to 20, is really this father's uh, blessing on his son and his new bride. Uh, It's a blessing on their sex life. Uh, I'm glad my dad didn't include this in his wedding speech, uh, this kind of stuff. Uh, But this father says uh, to his son, and may your fountain be blessed. Right? Fountain, we covered that. Fountain, springs. May your wife be for you, he says, like a loving doe. Uh, probably not the words I would choose to uh, describe the beauty of Gabby, uh, but in this culture, right, a, a loving doe, it, it really was. It was a symbol of beauty, of grace, of poise, of strength, of, of kind of a, a beautiful, sleek animal. What better way to describe your wife, right? A, a, a loving doe, a graceful deer. And, and so in verse 19, this father uh, says to his son, may, may the breast of your wife satisfy you. May you be intoxicated by her love. Uh, many of you here have uh, probably known that feeling of, of being in love, uh, perhaps even uh, of making love. Uh, and if you've experienced that, you, you might know it can leave you a bit giddy, right? a bit lightheaded. You know, you're a friend who's just kind of met someone and they're falling in love and they're, they're walking around on cloud nine, they can't see any problem with the person that they've met and you're like, what are you talking about? But they're, they're kind of, it's like they're drunk with love. They're intoxicated. And this father says, pursue that. Pursue that feeling. Enjoy that feeling. You should be drunk with love for your wife, he says. So let's join the dots here. Really, in these verses from Proverbs 5, 
Uh, I'm sorry if you're a bit uncomfortable with me talking about these things, but hey, two different strands of thought here in Proverbs 5. The first is that sex is good. Sex is a glorious gift from God. Uh, Sex should be enjoyed. It should be enjoyed regularly. And perhaps if you're here and you consider yourself to be a more uh, free-loving type, uh, you're more left-leaning politically perhaps, you're a bit more progressive, you're like, yes, sex is good. We should be able to enjoy sex, have sex with whoever we want, whenever we want. Fantastic. Uh, But of course, the second strand of thought here is, yes, sex is good, it should be enjoyed, but it should only be enjoyed in marriage. And that's, that's just so traditional, right? So conservative, so restrictive. But in our culture, uh, people don't typically put those two things together. Do they? People tend to, to either put, have a, a very high value on sex, so-called anyway, where sex is so good we should be able to have it with, with whoever we want, whenever we want, don't care much about marriage. Right? Or uh, they tend to put such a high uh, value on marriage uh, that they struggle to see any purpose for sex outside of making babies, perhaps. Right? They're so conservative. Right? Here, in the, here in Proverbs, we've got these two truths together, right? and that's the case throughout the Bible. The consistent message of the Bible is that sex is a glorious thing. A wonderful gift from God to be enjoyed as long as it's enjoyed in marriage. Uh, if you look at those verses from Proverbs 30, we, we see those two ideas again. Uh, let me read them again uh, from Proverbs 30, verse 18. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand are the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. Uh, If you read through the whole book of Proverbs, I encourage you to do that. Uh, You'll often see these three but four Proverbs. But the point of the proverb, that kind of literary structure, is to put the emphasis on the fourth thing. Right? In this case, there are three things that are, that are too amazing for the teacher to understand, but it's the fourth thing that's most amazing. Right? And you'll notice that the first three things are about one thing kind of moving upon another. It's amazing, the teacher says, to, to contemplate the, the wonder of an eagle moving across the sky or or a snake moving across a rock or a ship moving across the waves. Those things are tremendous. They're glorious. They're wonderful. But the most amazing thing is the way a young man moves when having sex with a young woman. This is the consistent message of the Bible. Sex is wonderful. It's one of the great glories of creation. And then we come to verse 20. And I don't know if you noticed that as we were reading it, but it just doesn't fit. doesn't fit, does it? Here we are, this, this kind of exalted picture of sex, this glo- the glory of sex, the, the wonder of sex. And we've got this adulterous woman who, who's, who's not only having sex outside of marriage, but is actively seeking to destroy marriages. And she engages in sex just like she's eating something. But for her, sex is just one more appetite to fulfil. She eats, she wipes her mouth, and she moves on. 
Uh, There's no wonder, there's no glory, there's no mystery. Uh, One of the things I uh, studied at uni uh, when I was an art student was sociology. Uh, I'm not a kind of great, I kind of did a kind of hodgepodge of all sorts of different things. Kind of, uh, I, I know a little bit about lots of things, but I don't know much about anything. Uh, so anyway, but sociology. Uh, but one thing I did learn when studying sociology uh, is that for the last couple of decades, uh, sociologists have been talking about this kind of social phenomena called uh, commodification. Uh, some of you might have heard of this word, commodification. Uh, it's essentially uh, the process by which social relationships are transformed into consumer relationships. Right? So, so uh, if you're in a consumer relationship, uh, if you're the consumer, uh, then there's another person that's the seller. Uh, and as the consumer in that relationship, uh, you really only stay in that relationship uh, if the product the seller's offering you continues to meet your needs. Right? That's the way consumer relationships work. So Gabby and I, we go to the uh, uh, Vietnamese hot bread shop over here in Thornbury. And part of the reason we go there is that we've gotten to know Tran, right? She's the the owner of the shop. Uh, And so there's a sense in which uh, there's a social relationship is there. Uh, But I've got to tell you that if their bread was to go up two or three dollars, or if the quality of their bread was to drop away dramatically, uh, we'd probably go elsewhere, right? This is how things work in a consumer relationship. Primarily, uh, we're there for the product, not the person. It's a consumer relationship, not a social relationship. And what's interesting is that sociologists have observed that, particularly in the last 20 or 30 years, uh, that all sorts of relationships are being commodified. So they're no longer based on commitment to people, uh, they're based on uh, consumption of products. So people only stay in the relationships, whether it be with their neighbours, their colleagues, their friends, their husband, their wife, even with their children, if the product those people are offering continues to meet their needs. I hope you can see how this kind of mindset has infiltrated into how we think about sex. It has a dramatic effect on how we think about sex. In our culture, sex has become a commodity. Sex is a product to be consumed. We're a lot like this woman in Proverbs 30. People are quite happy to separate the the so-called product of sex from any real commitment to people. And the Bible says that is not on. You should, you should never do that. Right? You should never commodify sex. That, that, that demeans sex. You should never treat your body or someone else's body as if they're products to be consumed. In fact, the strong message of the Bible we've seen here in Proverbs is that you should never give your body to anyone without giving them your whole self. Right? And you should never receive someone else's body without receiving their whole self. What do I mean by giving and receiving whole selves? It's marriage. So if you're having sex with someone but you're not willing to marry them, there's a sense in which you're still holding on to control of your life, of yourself. But you're not willing to commit uh, in sickness and health for richer for poorer till death do you part. You've still got an out. 
And not only have you not given yourself fully to them, you also haven't received them fully. Because you haven't publicly promised before God and others that you want to commit yourself to this person. You want to make them, this person, your responsibility, no matter what, for the rest of your life. And the Bible says if you haven't committed to someone like that and yet you're still having sex with them, it's not that you don't love them, but there's a sense in which you're you're, you're kind of sucking the guts out of sex. You're really just exchanging products, not whole selves. I don't want to hammer you on that. We're just saying you're missing out on the full wonder and glory of sex. Sex is about a one flesh union, which is not just physical, it's two selves coming together. Right? This is the destructive foolishness of undervaluing sex, of minimising it, turning it just into a, an appetite, a product to be consumed. Uh, of course, we live in a culture that's also able to overvalue sex at one and the same time. And this is really in that proverb, uh, just the the one proverb there, Proverbs 11, uh, verse 22. Uh, Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. So this is the picture, right? You you, you see this incredible ring, it's a beautiful ring, it's captivating. Uh, You just want to reach out and grab it for yourself, right? In fact, you're so captivated by the beauty of this ring uh, that that you fail to see uh, that it's attached to a pig. So you reach out and you pull that ring to yourself and before you know it, you've got this awful mess in your lap. A pig covered in mud uh, and faeces and dirt, That's the illustration. On one level, we we hear that and you probably think, what kind of idiot would do that? What kind of idiot? But this proverb is teaching us that if you uh, kind of simply look at at someone's physical beauty, their attractiveness, and and purely on the basis of that, you pull that person towards yourself without even noticing whether they're a person of character, whether they're shallow, whether they're selfish, whether they're godly, you're just as foolish as someone who pulls a ring to themselves and doesn't notice it's attached to a pig. You're just as superficial. You're you're blinded by beauty. So this verse... uh, it's relevant for men and women, we'll talk about it in a second, but I think it particularly functions as a bit of an uppercut for us blokes. That's why it's a beautiful woman in the proverb. It's, I think, convicting. It's telling us that our habit of objectifying women, of evaluating women, perhaps not completely, but often on the basis of their physical beauty, That habit is destructive and it's foolish because it's a massive overvaluing of physical beauty. Now, of course, on one level, it's just a fact that being a good-looking woman makes a difference, at least in our culture. 
Uh, there's a guy uh, named uh, Daniel Hammermash, uh, an economist, and he wrote a book called Beauty Pays. You get the gist of where the book's headed by the title, Beauty Pays. In it, he collects data from uh, across several countries, mainly Western countries, and he finds that for women, physical beauty is absolutely connected to success. Uh, and he points out that we see it even just in the little things. Right, so uh, let's say uh, a really good-looking woman, uh, she's able to talk the police out of giving her a speeding ticket. Or the beautiful woman who's uh, amazingly able to get a table at the restaurant where supposedly there were none left. Or the beautiful woman who's uh, just kind of quite by chance able to get the kind of six male co-workers who are eager to help her move furniture around in the office. Right, in, in our culture for women... It pays to be beautiful. So, so what, what's so destructive about that? Well, I, I'm no expert on this, uh, but in my experience, I, I think it means that far too, women, uh, far too many women uh, tie their sense of self-worth, their significance, almost exclusively to how they look. And that's part of the reason why, according uh, to the Butterfly Foundation, uh, nearly 70% of people in Australia who have eating disorders are women. In fact, in general, studies show that there's a much higher prevalence of eating disorders in Western countries like Australia than uh, there is in non-Western countries. Uh, so it seems that statistically, uh, the closer a woman gets to the heart of Western countries like Australia, to the heart of our culture, uh, the more likely she is to develop a, 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 an irrational sense that she's fat or ugly or worthless and so she develops an eating disorder of some kind. Right, this, this is how destructive it is, this overvaluing of physical beauty. Now, I know men get eating disorders, right? But 70%, like that's a big majority. And this is also destructive for men, this culture. And we see that in pornography, right? Which, once again, I know women struggle with it, but predominantly, it's a bloke's thing. And our whole society is starting to recognise how destructive it is. Last year, I read an article in The Guardian... Uh, the Guardian, right? Guardian, like not like the Australian or a really conservative paper, but The Guardian, pretty left-leaning, uh, progressive newspaper. Uh, and the title of the article uh, was How Porn is Damaging Our Children's Future Sex Lives. And according to this article, uh, porn is causing damage uh, in two main ways. Uh, the first thing that pornography is doing is that it's distorting our concept of beauty. So the article reported that according to the survey they did, 77% uh, of young women felt that pornography put pressure on them to look a certain way. And it specified right, large breasts, uh, perfect figure, lots of makeup, clean shaven and uh, sexy lingerie. And what's the problem with that? The problem with that is that real women are not like that. Isn't it? Real women have bumps and lumps and blemishes, that they have scars, they have hairy legs, and often, quite rightly, they can't be bothered shaving. But often they, they don't want to wear the sexy lingerie, they just want to get around in their tracky dacks. Right? But this article in the, in the Guardian is saying that for a whole generation of men, that's just not good enough, right? it doesn't turn them on. 
because their concept of beauty has been distorted. Uh, even feminist Naomi Wolf, uh, kind of third wave feminist, she's pretty hardcore, uh, uh, but she says, uh, pornography is responsible for deadening male libido in relation to real women. Right? The, uh, uh, kind of overvaluing a physical beauty seen in pornography, it's distorting our concept of beauty. Right? Lots of men really can't sustain a real relationship with a real woman. Uh, the article also points out that porn is distorting our concept of sex. Uh, because in pornography, there's virtually no uh, normal sex. Right, violence in sex uh, is not only suggested but encouraged. Even in the language, right, men uh, talk about hammering, uh, screwing, tapping, nailing women. It's disgusting. And even the Guardian recognises that it kind of, if you feed your heart and soul with that kind of junk, it's almost impossible to be satisfied with real sex with a real woman. Normal sex. And because our, our concept of beauty is distorted, our concept of sex is distorted, uh, I think one of the consequences of that is we've got a whole lot of men and women who feel more dissatisfied and lonely and isolated than ever before, perhaps. Uh, I used to work in, in university uh, student ministry. And so I, I guess I want to tell you how the average young guy decides who they're going to date. Generally speaking, this is how it works. Right, before I tell you, I want to say that there's nothing wrong with being phys physically attracted to someone that you date. It's pretty important. Uh, but in my experience, the average young university student, uh, male, uh, and if I'm honest, uh, this is what I used to do when I was their age, not trying not to judge too much, right? But basically what they do is they rule out, maybe consciously, maybe subconsciously, they rule out about 80% of women. Why? Because according to their distorted concept of beauty, those women just aren't attractive enough. And they've got no idea of their personality, their character. They probably haven't even spoken to them. They've just ruled them out. So then what happens is they decide to date one of the women in that 20%. Right? So a woman, like she's good enough to at least consider, beautiful enough. Right? And they're on this date, uh, maybe they go on a couple of dates, and after a while they think, man, this woman is so shallow. Uh, there's no conviction, there's no substance, there's no character. And I'm thinking, really? Like, she's shallow? Like, she might be shallow, but you're the one who's just ruled out the vast majority of women because they didn't match up to your distorted concept of beauty. And the consequence of that is there's a whole lot of men, a whole lot of women, who just can't get in real relationships. They're left lonely and dissatisfied and isolated. That's how foolish, how destructive this culture is of overvaluing physical beauty and sex. So, so how do we get out of it? How do we live wisely uh, with regard to sex and beauty? 
Well, uh, once again, in a strange way, uh, Naomi Wolf is kind of onto something, right? She doesn't know quite how to complete it, but she says, uh, the power and charge of sex is only maintained when there is some sacredness to it. Interesting. Some sacredness. Where is it uh, that we can uh, kind of recover this sense of sacredness or maintain this sense of sacredness? Well, of course, one place you can go is where the writer of Proverbs goes. Well, we saw that in Proverbs 30, didn't we? He goes to the wonders of creation. And it makes you think, makes you think there's something special about sex, something sacred about it. If you contemplate the, the glory of a, a soaring eagle or a slithering snake or a sailing ship, uh, you'll see something of, of the glory of sex. Uh, but in the New Testament, Paul goes further than that, doesn't he? Uh, Paul says, uh, if you really want to understand the glory and wonder of sex, don't just look at God's work in creation. You have to look at God's work in redemption, right? In how God has uh, loved us and rescued us in Christ. Uh, So in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish. So so really, uh, you'll never understand the depths of love or marriage or sex if you don't understand the gospel, if you don't understand Christ. So if you don't understand that that Christ really is uh, your ultimate lover, if you like. Some of you feel uncomfortable with that language. I understand that, right? But if you're a Christian, well, how does the Bible describe you? The Bible describes you as the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. Christ is your groom. And he showed his love for you by being willing to lay down his life for all of your ugly sin. And, and then his aim is to transform you, to make you his radiant bride. Right? That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Some of us have to get our heads around this. right? The the fact that that God uh, didn't just create you to be one of his subjects. This is perhaps how some of you think about your relationship with God. God is the king, uh, so you should submit. Now, that's true, of course. But God didn't just create you for that. He actually created you to be his lover, to be in a loving relationship with him, right? To, To love him, With what? With your heart and soul and mind and strength. With everything you have. To be consumed with love for him. To make him the very centre of your life. Just as what happens when you're in love with someone else. Your whole universe revolves around them. That's what God wants. That's the kind of relationship he wants with you, with us. That's what he created us for. But the gospel tells us that that we turn away from God. We give the love of our hearts to other things, to to people and things uh, that somehow we find more wonderful and and beautiful and glorious than God. We're we're drawn to them. So we give our love to them. And what does God do? God pursues us. He comes after us. He becomes a human being in the Lord Jesus Christ to win us back to win back our hearts that have been captured by love for other things. He wants to recapture our hearts for him. And you know what's interesting? Uh, Isaiah 53 tells us that when God uh, came to us in the Lord Jesus Christ to to recapture our hearts, 
Uh, Isaiah 53 says uh, that Christ had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Right, Jesus as the Son of God, he shared in the very glory of God. He was the most wonderful, the most beautiful, the most glorious person you, you could ever think of, yet he emptied himself of that. He, he gave that up in becoming a human being. And he entered this, our world, which even back then uh, was obsessed with physical beauty. He entered this world with no beauty. He was ugly, like a man from whom people would hide their face, Isaiah 53 says. And so what did we do? We rejected and tortured and killed him. Why, why would Jesus do that? It would say Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, even though Christ gave up all his external beauty, he didn't give up his internal beauty, right? His, his character. In his character, he was still radiant. He was still without stain or wrinkle and blemish. And if you trust in him, uh, he, he dies for all your ugly sin and he transforms you to be like him. To be his radiant bride without stain or wrinkle or blemish. And Isaiah 53 gives us a glimpse of what enabled Jesus to endure the cross for all our ugly sin. But in verse 11, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he saw and was satisfied. What did Jesus see? Well, it might sound corny to you, but he saw the fruit of what he was doing, the result of what he was doing. He saw you and me, us. The thought of people like you and me being made perfect and pure and, and radiant, as Romans 8 says, being conformed to his glory, that thought, uh, Christ saw that and he was satisfied that all the suffering of the cross was worth it. In a sense, he was satisfied that you were worth it, despite all your ugliness. And this is the key, right? Because the more you contemplate this idea, that the incredible truth that Christ was willing to give up all his glory and wonder and beauty uh, to, to give himself for, for someone as ugly as you so that you can be made beautiful, right? The more you contemplate those truths, uh, the more your heart will be filled with love for Christ. The more you'll be captivated by him the more he'll become the most beautiful and glorious and wonderful person in your universe. And once that happens, you'll be able to live wisely with regard to everything else that's beautiful in the world. Right? It's only when your heart is truly captured by Christ, when he is kind of your ultimate beauty, that you can live life, uh, wisely in this world that both undervalues and overvalues uh, physical uh, beauty and sex. Let's pray. Our Father, please uh, take this, your word, and plant it deeply in our hearts. Uh, please open our eyes, uh, even now, by the power of your spirit, uh, that we'd be increasingly blown away by the wonder and beauty and glory of our Lord Jesus. Please make us aware of the ugliness of our sin, uh, not so that we can wallow in it and, and feel guilty, uh, but so that we can be uh, filled with even greater love for our Lord Jesus. 
that he would give his life for us, not just to keep us at a distance, uh, but to wash us clean, to transform us, to make us his, his radiant bride without stain and, or wrinkle or blemish. Thank you that he was willing to endure the cross for us, to, to make that great work possible. We pray that as these uh, truths sink deeply into our hearts, that we'd be able to live wisely with regard, uh, as we live in this world that you've created, which is very good and beautiful. Uh, But please help us to live wisely, we pray. Amen.